0: Welcome to Talktown. Mark Gibbons was a state-level track athlete that has gone on to achieve amazing success in charity fundraising. This story is inspiring. These are the moments that make up his life.
1: Mark, can you tell me your earliest memory? I guess the earliest memories I have are of English countryside. I was born in London, moved out to a little country village called Wyndham in Norfolk, I guess back in the 60s your mum would turf you out of the house in the morning and you'd just go wandering and I'd wander country laneways, forests, pig farm, my uncle had a pig farm, memories of the pigs and walking through the snow in winter. So it was kind of an idyllic childhood really. Um,
0: so your memories of living in that area, did you have any other places you remember going to regularly and what you did there?
1: Yeah my dad used to, I don't know, for for some reason i you know, five, six years old i was into Vikings and Saxons and I'd go, my father had, had a sales job and he'd take me in the car with him and we'd end up going to churches and castles and just you know, generally out and about in the country.
0: Um, with the other podcasts we've done um, with older generation people, they've, most of their parents were heavily involved in war and their parents, the fathers especially, were damaged from that process. Uh, your father's in the 60s, so he probably lived through the war, but did he have any
1: involvement um, well, he, he was a child. Uh, he was born in 1938, so his earliest memories are, are kind of being shipped out of London to, to Wales to, to be boarded with people and other kids that, you know, they wanted to get all the kids from the Blitz and bombings and things. So uh, that was his earliest childhood. I, I brings back another memory that I have of visiting my grandparents in, in London and aunts and uncles in Suffolk, that uh, I'd be playing with my cousins, and we'd be playing on on the remnants of bombed out airfields that were still around in the sixties. So the old air short yeah, roof, air curvy shills. roof, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, bits of bombers and things. It was Maybe. quite amazing. Yeah, yeah. you didn't realise it at the time how uh, you know how significant it was. Yeah. And with your
0: parents, your mother and your father, as a small child, uh, were you closer to one or the other? Or were you, um, can you remember them being very close to you? Or yeah, I, was,
1: I, I think. Yeah, because of the time that I spent with my dad out driving in the countryside, and he was in the uh, the Reserve Army in England, the Territorials at that time, and I'd spend you know the weekends I'd go. To, he'd be doing whatever he did, and I'd just be wandering. So it was a fun childhood from yeah, that point of view. That's excellent. Um, yeah, my mother, yeah, less so, but that's changed over the years. What primary school did you go to? Ah, uh, initially Wyndham Primary. Uh, and then I was about seven, eight, uh, we moved to Australia and ended up uh, originally staying with an uncle of mine that had previously moved out a year before. ended up going to Richhaven Primary School. If anyone doesn't mm-hmm. know where that is, it's uh, in Teetree Gully Council area. I was there for a couple of years. Again, idyllic childhood. There was a giant creek to play. All the kids from school would go and play in the creek after school. Started getting into athletics and soccer. Was there a reason why
0: um, you moved to Australia? The parents did they sort of explain to you as a child, or you, it was just an exciting thing that
1: happened? I kind of have to say it's my second time to Australia because I was conceived in Australia in 1962, I guess it was. My father had, uh, originally left school and uh, joined the navy when he was 14, the British Navy, and left it when he was 21 and joined the Australian Army and moved to Sydney. Um, At that time, he had met my mother in England, had a bit of a romance. She followed him out to Australia. I was conceived, me in England. So three months before I was born, sailed back to England. Not too many flights in those days. And, um, yeah, so I was born in England, but my parents had already experienced life in Australia, and they just thought, in terms of bring in bringing me up, just from a cultural point of view, a weather point of view, lifestyle point of view, we as a family would be far better off in Australia.
0: Primary, when you were at primary school, you said you did soccer and athletics. Was that something you just excelled at, or found easy, or just you just did it because you? Were... I really remember
1: having this huge desire to do these things. You know, I remember watching soccer on TV in England, and I remember some sports classes where. I did quite well at running vivid memory of doing high jump for the first time where I, I beat the rest of the kids in the class by diving over the, the high jump bar into a sand pit. there was no padding or anything and I didn't nobody had shown us how to jump over and all these kids were stepping over and I thought, well if I dive over I'll get higher. So I kind of I guess that started me on the road to athletics and then coming to Australia and to Adelaide, you know, parents made friends and those friends had kids who were doing little athletics, so I ended up, uh, do you want to go out and do some athletics? Fun thing to do, yeah. peer group? Same, same thing with the soccer, kids in, in the class, they they were starting to play soccer for Fairview Park Soccer Club and little athletics for Surrey Downs, and am Gully, little lats, and I started doing fairly good time. From primary school, which high school did you... Uh, so primary school, I left Ridgehaven third term at St Ignatius Junior School, at least launch Catholic. And I guess they'd got to a point where they'd saved enough money, that so I ended up going to St Ignatius, and, you know, again, that whole ethos of being involved in activities, doing a lot more running and soccer and tennis. And so I, you know, two years at the junior school, moved up to St Ignatius, and with St Ignatius, the schooling, did you excel at high school with, academically? Or? <laughs> no, not at all. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd, my teachers would tell you that I spent far more time doing sports and wanting to do sports. From uh, we were, at that time, we were still living in the Tea Tree Cully. It was difficult to get to St Ignatius College at that My father would drop me off at 8 o'clock in the morning on his way to work. He'd pick up at 9 o'clock at night. I had nearly an hour before school to play sport. I had an hour and a half after school to play I'm sure Bishop Greg O'Kelly would have vivid memories of me hitting a tennis ball against the front wall of the school every night after school years. <laughs> and then I met up with Brother Paul Khalil and he started pushing me more into athletics at school. And I'd kind, of, I'd kind of done little athletics for a few years and then kind of drifted away from athletics for a while and it was kind of... Brother Paul, that brought me back into the fold, if you like.
0: And he actually had a club through the school, didn't he? Uh, the, the St Ignatius competed at Hazard. Uh, his...
1: Yeah, well, um, I, can't, I can't say that we as a school had a club. I don't know if that changed later, but certainly there was the Club Catholic Collegians, which mm. later became United Collegians, oh. which was, I guess, surrounded by people who had come through like schools, the, the school uniform. But it was, it was a great bunch of people. So with Brother Clue, what event did he sort of push you into and initially? Well, if I, if I step back a little bit, when I was doing little athletics, I kind of started excelling in 800 metres, you know, at that, that time I was running more with and against Mark Ahrens and Craig James, who both went on to be very good runners. And, you know, it's I remember uh, Craig saying to my parents, I don't know how to beat this guy. I'd have this little spurt at the end, and I'd... Be beating him in these these 800 meter races, and you know at that time, Mark's dad Otto Ahrens was was coaching me. I was kind of wanting to push further out under eights. In that in that day, they didn't have anything longer than 800 meters. So I was ending up also was organising for me to run under 11s to do 1500s, and I was I was doing quite well at those against kids three years older than me. So that lasted for a while can't actually remember why I drifted away from athletics at that point. But certainly, Paul Kalil brought me back into it. I mean, I was school sports days on 800s and 15s, trying to push me further into the uh, for the Achilles Cup, basically. So, uh, he, if you like, he dragged me back into doing athletics. <laughs> I think you did that to a number of yeah. people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was very
0: persuasive. Yeah. That was good. A bit of an icon back in our day of getting yeah. kids into the sport. Which is what it needed anyway. Yeah. It's really
1: good. He certainly didn't take no for an answer. So
0: from high school, you graduated high school. What Did you have part-time jobs or did you just go straight to uni?
1: <laughs> Again, I was very fortunate. I, um, a family friend in Sydney had a business which involved recording all the commercial TV stations for 24 hours a day. So it was a monitoring job. They wanted to record programs in Adelaide at that time so four stations uh, three stations uh, 7 9 and uh, 10 and my job involved the company putting three giant recording machine house with reel-to-reel tapes and once a day I would have to change those tapes 24-hour tapes every day I would change the tape and then send it off in a package overnight to Sydney they would then um, download that information it had a time date recorder, a very early style time date recorder or generator on these um, tapes that they could then work out when ads were going to air, how long the ads were going to. They would then sell that information back to uh, the TV stations and to advertisers who would pay. Very simple job, required a lot of dedication in doing this 365 days a year routinely, a quarter to seven every morning to these tapes, send them off. The job paid well. And I got my first car out of doing that. And right. so I've been doing that job from until I was probably So I really feel for these. Pre digital. Yeah, pre digital. <laughs> you could do it on a laptop now. Yeah, exactly. Well, you <laughs> wouldn't <laughs> even bother now. you just. Oh, memory sticks yeah. in the mail. But, yeah, I have to. Uh, John Lord was the guy that gave me this job. Um, we're still friends. Um, events that I've done in later life, he's helped um, with donations and things. Yeah, very, very very, fortunate, fast food outlets, oh, but, Um but it was good for athletics and, and sport as well. Training. Yeah, for training.
0: Did you, um? so where, what university did you end up going to? Went to Adelaide
1: Uni, scraped in. I was in a class at school of very high achievers and I was probably in, in the bottom 10% of those high achievers and just scraped into doing a Bachelor of Arts at, um, at Adelaide Uni. Ended up doing psychology, politics, and geography in my first year. And, of course, continued on with sport. I think it was around the time first year that um, I started hearing about John and John's uh, training squad and yourself and a few other people. Uh, it sounded like, you know, if, if, if I was going to do anything well in athletics, I needed to kind of step up a bit and get it seriously involved. And that's how I started trying. Weed all my way into John's group. <laughs> and that was hard work. Yeah, it was hard. <laughs> yeah, you know, John was um, not tough, but he he had standards, and yeah, had to meet those standards. But he'd consider you. I was always amazed
0: when you trained that you could do the training John Daly set. With our squad, and then get on your bike and ride home. <laughs> I could never fathom that. I the to cramp in the car on the way home yeah. every
1: night, and "How's riding yeah. the bike. But did that actually help you feel better, did it? I think it did, actually. I think it was a good way of warming down, mm. and, and warming up in the morning. Oh, no. because it was a good ride home. It was like more than 10 k. Yeah, it was at that stage. We were living at St Agnes, I'm still with my folks. Yeah, it's a, it was probably a, a, an, mm. an uphill in both ways. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, obviously both, yeah, yeah, down downhill coming to, to uni yeah. and, and weight work during the lunchtime breaks at uni. Now, I, I, I do think it helped uh, a lot about cross-training these days mm-hmm. uh, and this was kind of, at this stage it was really the infancy of triathlons as well, so I've never been interested in doing triathlons. I seemed like a brick, but I did enjoy the riding and it was extra, extra fitness. Did, did you think, because you, you didn't get many injuries, did you? None
0: of us did back yeah. then, but you had a pretty low injury. You yeah, weren't.
1: I can, I've tweaked some hamstrings occasionally, but yeah, I, maybe we weren't training hard enough.
0: Mm. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah.
1: Seemed like we were at the time.
0: Yeah. Well, a lot of the kids I coach now getting near the, I can crumble and fall on the ground dying. Yeah. So you just <laughs> think, oh, they're not even getting to where we were when we started, so yeah. yeah. Did did that help? we were sort of moving into your um, charity that you've been involved in, yeah. uh, which is a major part of this. Did, did that sort of uh, dedication to training or that um, involvement with that squad, did that help you prepare for the, your first big you
1: were involved in? Yeah, in yes, in certain respects. Obviously, my my first charity walk. Uh, was, was the length and from the south to which required making plans making a training schedule such that I would be able to do the three thousand ended up walking and those sort of events are hard to prepare for but you set up um, training schedules so that you move a 50k during the week shorter walks and so a lot of the training schedules that John set up for for both of us and, and there's kind of pyramid training that he you know, kind of helped with those walking events. So how long did the Japan walk take? The Japan walk was uh, probably longer than I wanted it to be. Not through any lack of ability on my part, but it was predicated by the fact that I was giving talks and interviews on a constant basis. So um, it ended up taking 88 days at an average of... Just explain what else you're doing. <laughs> why you're
0: walking, what were you carrying? Oh, okay. Um, I, <laughs> why, and why, would yeah, you, why I, were you?
1: I should set, set the scene. Oh, yeah. I, I'd been living in Japan for, at that stage, nearly eight years, um, teaching English privately. Some of the students that I had were doctors. They were heavily involved in promoting the fact that smoking kills and at that stage 49% of males in Japan were smoking. This is, this is 2006. Two things led me, or three things led me to, to this was one, my conversations with these doctors and the struggles that they were having with promote you know, smoking with, with little or no government help from the Japanese government because the Japanese government runs Japan Tobacco, which is their major tobacco company. So all the money Japan tobacco make, part of that always goes to the Um, that was one motivating factor Uh, the second was that uh, in in the early 90s I was living in Sydney, Uh, as a young girl from England called uh, Fiona Campbell, had written a book called Feet of Clay about her walk across Australia, I read the book I hated the book, it was all about the struggles that she was having with her boyfriend who was supporting her and driving the support vehicle, the difficult nature of the walk and the bliss size of the blisters that she had, and all the troubles that she I was just thinking at the time. So I set in my mind at that stage, one day I'm going to walk across Australia. The fact that these doctors in Japan needed some help, I came up with the idea of, well, how about I, I walk the length of Japan with your guys' support, and the support of the Japan medicals, and... We'll try and get some promotion of the anti-smoking cause. So we came up with a costume, which was... Um, uh, it's a traditional Japanese pilgrim's costume, which was uh, typical of the Buddhist pilgrimages that are done on the island that I lived on. So It was an all-white uniform with a conical hat. We put a giant anti-smoking sign on the hat. And I carried a flag, which was... or a banner, which was about... 2 metres by 30 centimetres tall and wide. And it had a, a message inscribed in Japanese writing which said, no smoking is love. And I carried this this flag, the 3,003 kilometres that, that the walk eventually took. So we started in the south of Japan, at the tip of, or the southern tip of Kyushu. And from there, with the aid of uh, doctors and dentists, and local medical associations the national association i virtually homesteaded my way from the south to the north and in the process gave uh, talks at schools uh, community groups uh, tv radio um, to the point where we estimate that i generated something in the six million dollars worth of advertised doctors i guess the most enjoyable thing out of it for me was the fact that the male smoking rate Ten years later in Japan, had dropped. So I, no. I like to think that
0: that was part of it. Part of it was of it. Anyway. Yeah,
1: <laughs> was was partly attributable. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but you were mobbed a bit by the media, weren't you? Yeah, it was kind of you know, this strange Australian guy that's walking the length of Japan in this weird costume. And yeah, it was kind of. a... A little bit of a celebrity. It's different. I mean, everyone knows the food in
0: Japan is a lot different to uh, ours. Yeah. So by doing your homestays, we're you having just just rice every day, or we're having were they trying to give you Western food because they knew you were Western. Were you sort of turning up every day getting a hamburger, or were they just giving you what they had?
1: No, I I got some amazing food. I remember stopping at one place, uh, a doctor I'd never met, me back to his house, and his his wife was all excited about me there, and she she'd gone on to. The computer and looked at what Australians eat and she sourced around somewhere and she had got this steak it was literally a foot long <laughs> I, I wasn't even sure that I was going to be able to eat the whole thing you know it was it was you know, the ends were off the plate and it's just this amazing piece of steak and if anyone's been to Japan you know that meat is ten dollars a hundred grams and I'm, this, this steak was it's huge uh, I, it was, it was awesome. And a lot of seafood that I ate. Yeah, everyone was trying to outdo themselves with with the quality of the food that they gave me. I think also because they thought that these were tremendous distances that I, I needed my strength. I mean, you'd still get the rice. You'd get all this other stuff. Um,
0: were you mainly on main highways or were you more back roads on those traditional, there's some traditional sort of roads that go through the back way? Yeah,
1: it would have been nice to have been on the traditional roads, but... We decided at the start that we were going to get the greatest exposure if I was so. I literally took the number changes, but basically there is one main highway that goes from the south, and, and I was on that. Okay. So
0: and they're very busy. Are they like four like near, like Los Angeles highways, the five lane type ones, or just more
1: like Australian? Yeah, no. There's I mean, and, and the states is the same. You, you're not allowed on the expressways. So Japan does have a, an expressway. System, but it also has a highway system so the main highway is the non toll road roads which unless you want to pay uh, a large amounts of money on, a, on the expressways everyone travels on them and these these are not four lane things they, they are generally one maybe two lanes and they'll go straight through them so
0: was the trip escorted or was this solely um, by yourself to yourself or you had like a civil?
1: I did have a support vehicle. Um, the local doctor on my home island had generously lent us um, a Prado four-wheel drive. Many thanks to my wife, Reiko, who uh, she drove that for 88 days that it took. She, um, she would literally drive a couple of hours, stop the vehicle, play on her phone or sleep or read. I'd come past, I'd pick up some bottles of water and some food. She'd drive off again for another couple of. We'd we'd keep leapfrogging all the way to the, to the top. And so
0: the forty, you said forty two k a day. Give us an idea when you started, most days, or did it change all the time?
1: It did change all the time because of media commitments. Mostly, we would generally arrive in a town in mid afternoon. We might have to go to the local medical association, meet the president of the association. We may have had local TV or radio and filming us as we, we came into the town, and that would have been for the news or for the next morning's newspapers. It would be washing and showering and maybe meet, meeting local supporters. And then in the mornings, again, including with the local medical association, uh, some presentations that I had to hospitals for the staff. So it, it, it was very much dictated by the events that were surrounding my. So I was was very much controlled in what I could do and when I could, Um, and that did lead to me getting frustrated occasionally. I remember about uh, the way through. I had a mobile phone with me, obviously. Uh, Rayco rang me up and said, "Can you walk faster? Because there's (laughs) there's a journalist wants to meet you at the next town." I did walk faster, and I got there. And I just I am sick of this phone, and I just smashed it against the wall. (laughs) You know, I just I just walked. 42 kilometres in six hours at seven kilometres an hour so that I could meet this journalist and he wasn't even there at, the, at where I was finishing he he was waiting in the hotel which is a couple of k's away stuff <laughs> so you had to walk there as well I
0: had to walk there as well oh yeah. wow oh. you should have made them just walk next to
1: you yeah it well, exactly. works and we did do I ended up sometimes I'd get journalists turn up on the side of the road well, you have to walk with me I just got sick of stopping and they spoke English, or you spoke enough Japanese for the media? Unfortunately, I don't speak enough Japanese. Um, it would have made life easier, <laughs> certainly for Reiko, who had to do a lot of translating. A lot of the journalists do speak some amount of English, and they would generally get the background information from Reiko anyway. She she would be the the, uh, the kind of support driver communications officer for the event. So... They would contact her. She would contact me. Check them back. we The TV was a bit harder because I would have to try and speak. Uh, we'd prearrange. Reiko would write down the words that I had to speak, and I would, she'd hold them behind the the interviewer, and I'd have to try and read them. <laughs> uh, it's disappointing. From the... Did you? Um, everyone probably think
0: that's a long way to walk. And how many pairs? Did you go through lots of shoes, or your rotated shoes? And did you get
1: massive or anything <laughs> happening like? That? I didn't get... In, blisters were... You, you and I both know the the blisters that you get from you know, running around Kensington which were fairly huge blisters, or at least mine were. So I was kind of used to the blisters. I did go through... I had four pairs of shoes that I was rotating. One pair that I particularly liked, I ended up wearing a hole through. The biggest problem that I had, uh, and it's, it happens routinely now on these events, is Uh, an ankle tendonitis that I get Uh, and obviously this was the first walk it happened after about 800 kilometres I started getting this pain in my ankle and shin on my left leg I can only describe it as someone sticking a fork into my ankle and then trying to cut the meat off with a knife the pain became intense I tried to walk through it I was uh, for virtually a week I was heading we were still south of Osaka and I was kind of just trying to keep up the momentum. I would literally start the walk in tears for the first two hours. I'd be hobbling. You know, after two hours, it would eventually go numb enough that I could stride out. A bit. And I was thinking this is likely you know, slightly be the end of the walk because I don't keep doing this. every. It was literally agony. And the, the swelling in the ankle and le- lower leg were increasing. I got to Osaka and... Some of the doctors that had been supporting me for the whole walk, they come out and walk with me for sections of it. They'd organised, you know, a chiropractor who spent. uh, We got to a hotel in in Osaka, and he literally spent an hour massaging one and then ice bath. And his pain's not going to go away. (laughs) I got up the next day. It was a little bit tender. I started walking. I wasn't crying. And within 24 hours, I was a genius. <laughs> he he had literally got rid of this excruciating pain overnight, and and without holding me up on the walk, it never returned. Did his phone number? I, yeah, we're still in contact <laughs> with him. He, he's um, um, uh, well, again, um, the carrying of the flag, even though it was on a pole and it was in a scabbard. When I got back to Australia, I was getting this severe tennis elbow. I rang him up. Within two weeks the Tennessee, <laughs> and he's just this unassuming guy that doesn't like smokers. So where where did the the, the walk finish up? Um, in a place called uh, Sada Misaki, which is um, Japanese, right? Uh, is the North Cape, very northern tip of Hokkaido. And when you finish there,
0: was it just relief that it was over? Yeah. What what happens is that relief that, thank like, god, this is finished, or I can have a day off, or it is. It's
1: it's weird and it's something that I had no control over. Obviously, there's elation that you've finished, and you know there were there about uh, and this this is really middle of nowhere, north of Japan. I had uh, ten or twelve supporters made the journey to be there at the finish on the last, uh, in, including the my my student, the doc. He made the train trip and flights up to the top, and he walked uh, with a bad knee for the last stage which was kilometers and all these other people were at the finish and we were carrying this giant japanese flag giant australian flag carrying the banner um just this elation and relief but then for the next week i would just suddenly burst into tears and i had no control over it i didn't want to do it it was just i just start crying it was just this whole outpouring of of all the the frustrations I had, all the joy I'd had on the you know, it was weird.
0: Comes out of your body. Yeah. Now I do know this story, but I want you to tell it. Yeah. Uh, you weren't happy with where you were forced to start from. Just tell uh, what you okay. actually did to start the race because it's quite funny.
1: Yeah. Um, the southern tip of Japan is in, uh, is uh, is a lighthouse, and it's it's in a national park. Uh, it's probably. From memory, now maybe five or ten kilometres of national park before you get onto the, the main road, and uh, the supporters that I had down in Kyushu, we dr- we drove out to the lighthouse, and there was uh, a local park ranger there, and he, well, what are you doing? Get out the car, and I'm going to start walking, and I'm going to finish in the north of Japan, and he's going, well, Do you have a permit? I need a permit to do what? Need a permit to a permit to walk. You need a permit to walk in a national park. You need a permit to walk on the road out of the national park. So the uh, the dental professor that was looking after me on this first day was was trying to negotiate, but he wasn't winning. Because it was a medical association sanctioned event, he didn't want to upset the rules. We'll, we'll drive the first part. We drove in, we can drive out, that's fine. And I'll start from the edge of the park, because uh, I don't want any trouble. So we did that. Everything was fine. And then I, I did my walk for the, you know, come evening time, I just... To my wife, Reiko, right, we're going to turn around, we're going to go back. We're going to go back to the start of the park. I'm going to walk to uh, Lighthouse, and then I'm going to walk back out, because I am going to walk from the south of Japan to the north of Japan. So, no light service... It's actually a beautiful night. It was, it was a full moon. I walked in, saw nobody. <laughs> uh, you know, I wasn't going to have like, yeah, peace of mind. Yeah. yeah. But, you know I said I was going to walk <laughs> from the south to the north. I wasn't going to have bureaucracy tell me, you can't do this. You can't walk in a national park. <laughs> Rubbish.
0: <laughs> okay, jump forward a little bit. You, after walking Japan, yep. and in 2009, you decided, well, I'm going to walk across Australia now.
1: Yeah. So, so, what well, caused that madness? Do right. it again. <laughs> well, if, if you like. Japan was a bit of a stepping stone. As I say, yeah. I'd, I'd read this book, um, Campbell. If I can do Japan, I can do Australia. So it's, it's hard to say whether I, it's, it's the walking that I like or whether it's... I do actually like the planning for these things. I guess the thing I don't like is... is I mean, I, I do it for charity, but I don't like hassling people for donations or for sponsorship for that matter. So I'm I'm good at planning where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do, but I'd rather leave the donations and the charity stuff to someone else. Um, That's the hard bit. The walking's easy. So as I say, I'd had this desire to walk Australia since the early 90s. Japan approved that I could walk. And you and and Judy and John would all all know that there's there's, there's a satisfaction to doing something that gives back to people. And I really wanted to give back um, in a meaningful sort of work. I worked as an English teacher in Japan, but I spent most of my life working as a, as a registered nurse or a clinical nurse. I've seen a lot of people suffer, a lot of people die. I wanted to make more of a contribution to those lives than just nursing individuals. I thought um, it, it would be good to try and raise money. For, not because I had any special connection to young child you know we all have people that and if you can put money into research for kids cancer it's it's expand to saving others. i've had a couple of aunts die from cancer throughout this walk across australia numerous stories of children with cancer so came up with a plan the hospital i work at sports med and some time off basically gave me three months to to walk a Australia and raise money for various uh, children's cancer charities started in Perth decided to again take a major highway so which um, did south out of Perth and then across the Nullarbor to...
0: and was that an unassisted one or was that a, uh, how did
1: that one work? I think uh, my wife had had enough of support vehicles for a lifetime <laughs> <laughs> um, so we just de- we decided um, it would be unsupported, and therefore I needed to. In in speaking in speaking to friends, uh, I was chatting with uh, Rob Gorringe one day, and he said, Have you heard Have you heard about Colin, Colin from Boundary umpiring and pro pro running? Yeah, yeah he's the guy. He he walked around Australia. Oh, okay. Well, how do you do it? So then it led to me meeting up with Colin, and he still had the buggy that he had used, which was a baby buggy that had been Slightly modified into a, a bag on wheels basically so we ended up chatting and uh, he was just a, a huge resource for walking across Australia he walked around Australia for a lot of tips on how to do it the buggy the spare parts for the buggy it all got uh, bundled together and and, uh, and shipped shipped over to uh, on the Indian Pacific rail line it sponsored my travel to Perth and then he sponsored sponsor me.
0: So out in the outback was it just you camping out? Yeah, literally. you have any pets with you No pets. No dog?
1: No dog. So it's just you. Just little, Wilson the buggy. Wilson buggy and a little sleeping bag. Uh, a little sleeping bag and a tent.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, this walk uh, to show the difference in, in speed uh, took 77 days for 5,000 kilos at an average of 67 kilometres a day. Because I'd been freed up from not having to do all the promotional work I could just walk so there were days, many days, where I'd walk up for 18 hours. I remember walking constantly for 27, walking into Geelong. That was the longest. That was, not every night was uh, friends in Perth had been kind enough to uh, want to help and were, were ringing ahead to towns and just uh, local hotels that would put the 77 days I'd spent uh, in the tent and others were in homestays and motels that had just donated maybe a meal. So it was, um, you yeah, of, know, of all my walks, it's, it's been the best walk. Just this huge sense of freedom and, and just the, the dramatic landscapes of Australia. It's, it's just amazing. Um, the, there was any time, probably both walks, was there any time you felt in danger on these two walks? <laughs> uh, not. Certainly in Japan, I felt no danger whatsoever. Uh, and I think because I uh, had the support vehicle, I had a lot of supporters that were, were there worrying about me all the time. Um, Australia, uh, not, not danger, but certainly there were uh, distances that had to be covered crossing the Nullarbor was, was a walk of 100 kilometres without resupply in the Nullarbor Roadhouse. So uh, it was certainly you had to think about um, did I have enough? But in terms of danger, some strange noises that you get at night. Um, dingoes howling is is quite extraordinary. Um, when you're in a tent by yourself, <laughs> yeah, when you're in a tent by yourself and you've got these these dingoes going off like wailing banshees, it's, you, you think you you're okay. It's just weird sounds. And yeah, I remember sleeping in some bushes uh, on the New South Wales coast and some weird guy was in the public toilet block wailing the same way and I doesn't know where I am like 10 meters away in these bushes in my tent and it doesn't find me <laughs> yeah, weird things <laughs> um, but no um, the most dangerous things obviously were the traffic the big double trucks and... yeah uh, look I was walking against the traffic and I'd get off the road if I saw the big trucks coming I mean we big trucks mm. triple road train things yeah. if if they could they, they could see me in distance you know, I was well lit up with line the buggy was yellow they would always move I couldn't fault them for that uh, the, the difficult times were uh, trucks coming in both directions at the same time and I may not hear the one come and you literally get blown off the road <laughs> um, only two times did I feel th- personally threatened by vehicles one was a Truck, I was coming down towards. Truck came round a bend. He wasn't paying attention. He started veering off the road towards me, and I had to jump out of the. A bus driver who saw me and decided that he didn't like me and drove his bus towards me. You get out of the way, but I would feel a lot more under threat if I was riding a bicycle doing the same because you're riding on the same side as the More dangerous. Okay. well,
0: Well. It's hard to believe it though. after you finished your walk across Australia, well, seven years later, you decided you'd walk across America. Yeah. Why not? Why not? <laughs> this is there. Um, I mean, to talk about these, we could talk all day on one of these. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm finding ways we're doing it. Well, wow, I'm rushing a little bit. But um, okay. You walked. Then you decided you'd walk across America. Yeah. So, same thing. Any adventures on that trip? Um, you tell it. Just sort of just tell us what you're wearing. I think we need to know. Oh, okay. We need to know that. And why. And why? I
1: don't okay. know why, really. Oh, well, there is a simple answer to why. Um, I guess maybe a year or two years before I did the America Walk, there's quite a famous guy who walked uh, across Australia, and he's, he's famous for wearing a Star Wars Stormtrooper outfit. And I think when I walked across Australia, I, on Facebook, I had maybe 1,000 you know, likes. Uh, this guy in the Stormtrooper outfit, in his first two weeks, he had 60,000 likes on his website. I mean, from a charity point of view and trying to get donations, um, it just seemed like the way to go was to come up with a gimmick. And I didn't want something that was so rest- restrictive as a Stormtrooper outfit because I had a time frame and I just wouldn't have been in a Stormtrooper outfit. So I ended up, I decided to get this Lycra, red light for costume, the Flash, the Marvel superhero. Um, it was thin, it was lightweight, it had the added advantage of I didn't have to wear sunscreen, but head to toe in red light. It didn't really have the same effect as a stormtrooper. And certainly in America, America was interesting in terms of people would stop and you'd think, oh, they're stopping to give a donation, but no, they would stop and go, have my photo with you. And then they drive off. Seriously considered, you know, being pushy and say, well, you feel like a donation. But um, I'm not a pushy sort of guy, so that's okay. Um, so yes, I, I walked. Well, I started walking. Um, I did have a support crew, uh, Colin from the Walk Around Australia, Colin Ricketts. Um, he and his wife um, very generously came over to the states. and We hired a car, and they were my support crew for two weeks, which is the, the amount of time that they could get off work. And, and to them, I'm very grateful because the event would have occurred without their support. And uh, the, the states was a whole different. The, the dangers were more in my mind, uh, particularly from from bears and, to a lesser extent, coyotes. Uh, reports of coyotes um, killing people and uh, definitely bears killing. People. I didn't see any bears on the trip, but I was uh, shadowed by a coyote one night, and I was walking it with a torch. I could just see this coyote fifty meters away from me, and he was just matching me pace for pace for about two hours until I eventually, Colin, came back with a support vehicle. It it made me a little bit nervous. Certainly not the most dangerous thing that occurred to me. And Colin will attest to to how nervous I was. I was... uh, America is a series of mountain range high plains. And I was in a high plain area, typical saltbush kind of, cowboy setting, and I was in the middle of an electrical storm. Giant thunderbolts of zapping down to the ground. You could see them all over the planet, literally following rainfall, spots of rainfall everywhere. And I was the tallest thing on this plane, and I was just, when is it going to... And it wasn't just your little, literally, bolts of lightning, just feel the ground reverberate as they were hitting, and Colin... Thankfully, he was driving back because he thought the weather was bad. I literally ran and jumped in the car and said, "Let's get out of here." Mm-hmm. I was, I was shaking. I was cold. I was, it was just, it was a nightmare. Yeah, it's
0: because of the thin air, isn't it? I mean, in Bryce Canyon, the lightning always strikes there and the trip. Petrified. Yeah. hit by lightning so many times. There's all these like yeah. dead, petrified it, trees, It, it was continually gets lightning. One of the
1: scariest things I've been yeah. ever. Guns came up on this trip, probably the first time in your life you've been. It was yeah, guns. Uh, Colin tells the story, and it wasn't far away from, from where the lightning was so, um, meeting a guy explaining the walk and the guy saying you've got to have a gun. Everyone's got to have a gun. Who knows what could happen out there? Someone might shoot you, you've got to have a gun. You know the coyotes might catch you. you've got to have a gun. But it, it was the amount of guns that you saw was, was phenomenal. you don't see a gun in Australia most of the time throughout with the farmers. Um, I'd be walking down the main road and then just off the road, 10 metres off the road, there'd be people set up a shooting range and playing with guns. And guns were everywhere. And the other thing about the States, of course, is uh, highly religious, especially in the Midwest. You go into towns and you have more churches than you would fast food outlets. And America is a place for fast food outlets. There's more churches, more congregations. It's... And, and yet, like I say, the people weren't that generous to, to giving money. Point in fact, I'd, I, for, that, for the event, and the, and the event was uh, to raise money for Third World Water Project uh, through the Red Cross, I ended up uh, getting $10,000 worth of donations for the event. and Out of that, I got $200 roadside donations. All The rest of the donations were from Australia. Compare that to Kids Cancer walk across Australia, $25,000, uh, both roadside and you know, online. So, yeah, it was, it was um, certainly not the, the best experience. And again, as with as the Australian walk, the same tendonitis I got walking across Australia. Again, after 800, uh, I got the same in the States uh, on the opposite leg because of the road camber. And uh, the Australian uh, injury we managed to fix with some strapping The Port Power Physio at the time, I called him, 800 ks in the middle of nowhere, Uh, some re-advice on strapping the leg, 24 hours again. Uh, In the States, 800 opposite leg, Uh, we tried strapping, we tried massage, we tried all sorts and the leg was just getting worse. Again, I was to the point of hobbling, crying, walking, and it just got to the point one day. um, At this stage, I had uh, an American, a retired American guy, had agreed to... Be the support vehicle. Two weeks, Colin and his wife went back to Australia. Uh, it got to a point one day. It started hailing. <laughs> I'm stopping <laughs> uh, this this leg. And at this by this stage, the leg was going purple and was completely swollen. It was. It wasn't a pretty. I just said, Yeah, I've had enough. I'm stopping. We're going to go to the next town and go into Walmart. I'm going to buy a bicycle and I'm going to finish the finish this walk ride. I'm going to get get across to the other side of America. So. A you know, hundred dollars later, I'm back out, back to where I'd stopped, and riding this bicycle across the States. And the leg bent down, that? So. Yeah, it took um, two weeks before it settled back to normal. But it, it certainly, the riding completely, I felt no ill effects from the riding on they pretty amazing. You still didn't give up. You still finished it. Got
0: to the end. Yeah,
1: I don't like to give up. Yeah,
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> we can hear that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's why endurance events are good for you. I don't like to give up. Um,
0: last question yep. uh, is, what makes you happy? Is it the walking, or is it something else? Is it what actually
1: makes you...? I think it's the sense of achievement. It's the... And I haven't got there yet, but it's, it's trying to find your limit. And I've, I've, I've probably come close to my limit to find something else. I've recently just done a 1,000-kilometre bike ride through the Snowy Mountains. Um, in five days with seven hours total sleep injuries fell off the bike five times bruised ribs numb hand Uh, middle of nowhere lost you just find ways to keep pushing forward in fact the race organizer said you know if you think if you think that's all you can do one step forward one step and all of these events there's been times you don't put your body through these things to give up and like i say i become close to quitting but you always find some reserve it's all it's all about that's what i like is to try and find well i'm trying to find my limit i just keep surprising myself that i just haven't got to that limit i don't know when the limit's going to come but
0: i'd like to thank mark for coming on talktown today please listen to these podcasts make comments and also subscribe